You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Welcome to The Open Door, a show based on the words in Revelation, I have left an open door before you, which no one can close. This is WCAT Radio's longest-running show, which opened the door to the radio station in October 2016. It's currently offered by Jim Hanink, Mario Ramos Reyes and Friends, and remains open to the love of God in its call to build a culture of life and a just social order through the panel's discussion of the Catholic social teaching principles of solidarity, subsidiarity, and economic democracy. The Open Door also explores nonviolence, distributism, and communitarianism. So join us at The Open Door, where you too can be part of the conversation. Welcome to The Open Door. Jim Hannock here with fellow panelists Mario Ramos-Reyes and Christopher Zender. Today we discuss evangelizing young people. Statistics suggest that many of them will join the ranks of the nuns and profess no religious identification. Some think that the nuns are prone to replace religion with politics. A welcome and returning guest is Ed Rushman of Anaheim, California. He's a consultant who directs the enterprise IT efforts of leading companies, most recently securing them against ransomware attacks. And there's a very recent attack that I just read about. Ed is a religious educator who prepares young people for the sacrament of confirmation. And confirmation is the sacrament of courage. So it's no surprise that Rushman is also an indefatigable and independent political reformer. He's run for Congress twice. The smart money says he'll do it again. Let's begin, as always, in prayer. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same spirit, we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in this consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Could uh, you begin, Ed, by telling us what I should have added to that mini intro? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, well, I think one of the things that you touched on is that, you know, I have a day job. It's not, I don't do this the confirmation thing full time. I don't get paid for it or anything like that. Uh, that has been going on for a very long time. I've actually been working since 1962 uh, because I started when I was a child uh, working in Hollywood. Uh, but for the most part now, I have a day job for the last 40 years, uh, you know, married 40 years. There's a whole story to that. Uh, six children, 
uh, grew up. I think one of the reasons that I enjoy working with the young people is because when I was growing up, I had no role models. Uh, my parents divorced when I was two, uh, became Catholic because I happened to read the Bible through an accident of fate uh, when I was about nine, uh, a few times through actually, because there was nothing else to do. I mean, that's just the truth. Uh, exposed to the Baltimore Catechism when I was 11, instantly said, this is the truth and this is what I want to do, uh, became Catholic. Uh, and I've had a rough time in many ways where not managing my life well, I really had a rough uh, teen years, uh, as much as I hate that term, uh, in falling into one ditch or the other on the, on either side of the road, both sides of the road. Uh, and uh, just, but God is faithful and I have kind of a wide experience. That's the reason why there's poetry in this one. Uh, and everything interests me. So how's that? <laughs> That's good. That's good. Now, how did you come to preparing young people for confirmation? So my life when I was, uh, I used to manage retail before I went into computers. Uh, and my life was pretty lousy when I moved out. Uh, my folks split up. They went back together and split up again. So I kind of found myself living by myself, uh, very much uh, hand-to-mouth uh, when I was 19. Anyway, did a horrible job. It was awful. And when I was 23, I made a retreat called The Search, uh, which is short for Search for Christian Maturity. Uh, the way that came about was that I was just feeling so horrible that I asked a, a coworker, a guy that worked for me in a retail store, uh, because he had told me that his uh, sister was religious, you know, does she know of any retreats? And he said, well, actually, she works on one. So uh, anyway, it's a wonderful group. I, you know, I know what they're doing now, but it was wonderful back in 1980. Uh, made the retreat. It was a, an utter shock to the system. It was, it's, I can't, I can't possibly overstate uh, how severe of a shock. It was the first time in my life I'd ever seen community. Uh, I'd never had the experience of being around people that didn't know me, but loved me. Uh, so it was pretty amazing. And then, so after that, my life changed. Uh, and some of us from that retreat group, uh, went off and, and volunteered at various parishes. And so I ended up uh, at the time uh, doing a remedial first communion class, which was, you know, ones that were older that had missed it when they were young, uh, did that with Carol, my wife, uh, and then just went from there and worked on the retreat some of the time. Uh, definitely uh, the retreat, the way that that was done, the the spirit of the community is something that uh, affected me deeply. Uh, and I also was very blessed at the time the adult advisor uh, did a really good job understanding what would work for me and recommending books. And, and we had some conversations that really set me on a better path. So that's kind of how I guess I'm telling you how I was prepared for it and also how the occasion of it came about. So then every parish that we lived in uh, after that, you know, I would just do something. Uh, and it just so happens that confirmation seems to be the thing I've done the most. Uh, and I won't 
you know, I guess I just have to be direct. And honestly, I didn't think it was being done very well a lot of the time. And if something isn't going the way that I think it should, uh, I will volunteer and say, you know, would you like me to help? And, and, and preferably they just turn me loose and let me go do it. So uh, that's, that's really it. So it's been almost, well, it's been 40 years that I've been doing uh, teaching at the parish uh, in one thing or another. You know, there's a few gaps in there. Uh, I have been places where they just weren't interested. <laughs> Not the young people, but the leaders, you know, they're like, no, no, we do this differently. <laughs> it'll yeah. fit in here. So, well, that, 40, 40 years is a, is a good long time, but maybe Mario wants to ask us about uh, your current teaching efforts. Yes. <clears throat> um, what do you tell young, stu- uh, young people about um, the Christian faith in your classes uh, and how they've received that? So, <clears throat> That I'd like, you know, I think I'm going to go with the second part first. You know, one of the things that we do, okay, first of all, one of the things we do in business is I try to make changes and then measure the change. I'm always looking to, uh, it's, there's a thing called the Deming cycle for those that know. And it's, you plan something, you do it, and then you see, did it turn out the way you wanted? So every year, uh, in most of these parishes, in every year, they will the director of the program or the parish priest will meet with the students and say, you know, hey, how's it going? And they'll ask them a few questions, and they all do it a different way. But in the end, they'll ask you, know, how do you like the classes? And the students will tell them. And the feedback that they get, and I like it being independent from me. I actually don't want to be in those meetings because I want the students to feel completely free uh, to say whatever they want to say and that, that I don't color it. But anyway, what they always say is they really like the stories. So that's by way of introduction. It's the stories that I tell. And I do tell the the stories about the saints, stories uh, from history. I do give a lot of history uh, as a way, though, of giving them context. And what I've found was that they weren't often getting context in the faith. They're getting points, you know, being told this is the teaching, you know, hopefully, uh, but they're not always getting everything that goes around it so that they go, okay, here's how it fits into the totality of, of, of history. Here's how it fits into the world. But most importantly, how does this fit into my life? So what I'll do is I'll say, okay, here's something that we're talking about. Well, here's my experience with it. And here's how the faith fit in with that and, and how it becomes, you know, in technical stuff, they say, this is how I realized it. Uh, but so, for instance, uh, one of the ones I did, well, let's see, week before last was on work, labor and work, and gave them examples uh, and told them stories of my own experience with work, things that people did well, mostly things that people did well, uh, examples that I found, uh, managers that I felt treated workers well, uh, what things they did for me, uh, but also uh, relating it in two ways. Uh, I would relate it in how does my faith help me work? And then how does my faith help me to lead other people? Because you always have to look at it from the point of view of how do we treat the worker, but also as a worker, how do you treat not just the employer, but your customers? How do you treat your coworkers? And then we get, I'll ask them questions and they'll come back and not questions of, you know, what does the church teach on this? But, you know, 
who here's working? And, you know, these are high schools. So there's a lot of experience they don't have yet. But, okay, one raises his hand. I, okay, what do you do? Well, I work in a fast food. Okay, what do you do there? Well, I'm at the cash register. Okay. Then we talk about, okay, how can you be Christ to the people you meet? Uh, I tell them about some of the other conversations I've had in the past where people said, well, I can't, I'm just a, a, a hostess. I, I, I just greet the people coming in. How am I supposed to be Christ in that situation? And for folks here, you know, you may look at that and go, well, obviously you're meeting new people. What a what better way to be Christ to people than to have people use, you're the first one that they see and to make them feel at home and everything else and, and love them without saying, you know, to everybody that walks in, I love you. Uh, so it's really applying it. Uh, last night was on marriage and it looks like we're going to have to do two weeks on that. Uh, but in the marriage, there's, there are things that I share from my experience. There's things that I share from statistics, from, you know, what's going on in the world, you know, how successful the marriage is. Uh, I think it's the, I think it's bringing in the stuff from my professional life and using some of those things both the approaches and the stories uh, in a way so that they feel like it's real because I'm giving them what's fresh and what's real all the time. It's, it's not something that's canned and no two classes will be exactly alike, Uh, but they're hearing it. This is what lived faith is like. It's so it's, it's, it's not just the book, but I do struggle sometimes to properly blend the book with the practical experience and the stories. Cause if you go too far one way or the other, you know, you don't meet your objective. Does that kind of make sense? It sure does. <laughs> now, Christopher Zender uh, writes history books for oh. uh, young people uh, in the confirmation mm-hmm. age range. Plus he writes stories and so I'll bet he has something to say that picks up on your emphasis on stories. Christopher. Yeah, I, I, was, I was listening to how you present things in class, and you, you said earlier that um, you didn't think oftentimes the, the, the classes were being conducted properly, and you had ideas on how to do that. And I, you, I, you, I, you described some of the things you do, like the storytelling. Um, you talked about how we live our, we, we try to teach students how we live our faith. I mean, I, the term faith often has two senses, right? The, there's the sense of faith, which is my faith, which is sort of like the habit of my soul, by which, mm. which is the fountainhead of all, everything of, of hope and charity and, and should be the fountainhead of everything I do. And then there's what we call the faith, which is the objective uh, tradition, the teachings and the like. How do you, how you said you sometimes you, you want, you, you think there should be a balance between presenting, I guess, both those sides of it, the stories, which could be reflective of the internal faith. And then there's the object, the objective teaching. How do you do that? How do you bring those things together? How do you keep maybe the stories from overwhelming the, uh, the uh, objective content of the faith? I really like what you said about habits of the soul. I want to write that down because <laughs> that's new to me. It, it, I really like it. Uh, I'd be probably very familiar to others. Uh, really, it comes down to self-control. And strangely enough, experience on my part uh, with my children when they were in high school, I had one in particular uh, that 
would come home and said, you know, all the teacher does all day is tell us about how miserable her life is. She just tells her personal problems all day. And she's gotten into this, I forgot what the philosophy thing was at the time, not real philosophy, but like pop, pop psychology stuff. Um, but she was basically working through her psychological exercises in the classroom. <laughs> and, and in her case, uh, I think that the thing that's different is there's self-control that it's not about me. Uh, I only want to tell them what they will find relevant, but I don't try to figure that out too hard because then I could cut something off that who knows, maybe one, if one cares, then that, that I want it. Uh, but I will, it's funny because I'll have, there's a point where I will say out loud <laughs> most of the time, well, I'm probably going on too long about that, you know, and that's just, that's the self-control part. Uh, the other interesting thing is, uh, and I'm not, as, as some of you know, I'm not a scholar or anything, but I did listen to a, a, quite a bit of lectures on St. Augustine and, and I have, a, I've developed a stronger appreciation. And I think it was him that treated the faith, the, the, the fall, if you will, as a disintegration. So it's between the faith in the sense of the objective things that we can state, you know, creed and things like that, uh, and personal experience, if there's, if there's a question of putting them together, then I feel like my faith isn't really integrated. I'm not really, maybe I don't want to say healed from the fall. Um, I mean, I'm certainly redeemed in one sense, but not that I have fully lived that redemption, uh, but to me, that's, that's the key. And I do actually say that explicitly. I do a whole class just on St. Augustine. Uh, it's to integrate it so thoroughly. Uh, I have a lot of stuff in my head. There was an old perfume commercial, you know, one of these things, you know, where they have these really very artsy perfume commercials. And it says, you know, and she says, you know, I don't know where you begin and I end or something like that. But, you know, most romantic stuff you can apply to the faith and our relationship with God very well. And I don't want to know where the faith ends and my experience begins. I want those to be so blend, not blended, but so one. Uh, again, I, I may have been Augustine that talked about that in perfection or in paradise, in heaven, that passion and reason are... Are, can be one thing, you know, that they are so perfectly in tune that you can have both together. And, and that's, that's what I'm looking for is maybe it's asking for the impossible in a way, but I believe it's possible in some fashion. So, so it's really, it's self-control that I don't go farther than I should on the story. And also always having a point, whether I'm telling a story, sometimes I tell a joke or say something in a funny way, but when I do it, it's natural for me that there's always a point and I don't deviate from that point um, unless I lose self-control and, and get lost, you know, but that's the thing is there has to be a point. Jesus didn't tell us stories about a, a, a falling tower in Siloam or wherever it was, uh, you know, just because he felt like telling them the news of the day, it was illustrating a point. So really my model I, for lack of a, I mean, my model is Jesus for that. When he told stories, he never got carried away with the story. At least nobody ever wrote that part down. 
uh, and it always had a point. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it's, I'm curious about this because I can see when you're talking about marriage, how it's easy to put stories in. How, how do you put stories in when you talk about the Trinity? <laughs> that's harder. <laughs> uh, you know, the closest thing, you can't always, you know, that's the other thing. It isn't, it's not one size fits all. So I'm not going to do everything the same way in every case. I'm like, okay, when it comes to the Trinity, here's my story about the Trinity. But I do tell them the story about Augustine at the seashore, you know, about the little boy. <clears throat> and so I think that uh, that's a story. You know, it's not my story, but in a sense, it is my story. This is my, this is integrated into my life. That is something that will naturally come up. And I will tell that story to people. So here's the funny part. I do the same thing at work. I'm pretty much the same every place. Uh, so at work, I will tell stories. Now, they won't necessarily be stories of scripture, but at least once in my career, I have told that story of the seashore because we were dealing with something very complicated technically. And I told them that story because, hey, we're trying to shove all this technical information into our heads and it's too much. Uh, but with the Trinity, I'll mostly tell them what others have said. I do use quotes and then... Uh, expand the quote out and spend some time helping them to understand it because I want them to develop the ability to read something or hear something and then break it down and really medit meditate on it without ever saying meditate on it. And the best way I know to do that is to do it with them uh, and essentially model the behavior. Uh, most, most classes uh, I will start with the Sunday readings for the next Sunday, and then just basically read usually the first reading in the gospel or the second reading. I can't go through. If I do them all, I'll lose them. But I'll take the readings and then read them out loud and then basically just do what I would do in my head out loud and then draw them in, you know, and say, have you been in this situation? Do you remember a time like this? And then they go, yeah. And, and, and you know, and then something happens. Uh, but yeah, it's still going to be a story. It just may not be my story. Although sometimes I'll say, I, for, the, for the Trinity, I will relate it to, you know, I have multiple roles and we're not going to fully describe it here and everything. And I always tell them the limits of, of this. But, you know, I'm, am I a father? And Well, yeah. You know, am I a son? Yes. You know, am I a brother? Yes. You know, I have a lot of different things but those are not separate things. It's all me. And yet they are perceived as separate and, and they really are separate things. And then I always remind them, you know, all these images, especially of the Trinity uh, are, it's an imperfect expression. I, I'm not going to get this just right. I'm not going to tell you something where you suddenly have the full understanding of the Trinity, you know, and I point here like it's in the head, but of course it, it we, we also talk about the soul and, and the body and some things like that. Is that kind of, to kind of do it? You know, it's, it's acknowledging the limits of what we can explain, but I can always get a story out of it, even if it's a story that we hold as a community, like the story of Augustine at the seashore. Which is public domain, by the way, so you're safe. Yes, yes. We try to be careful about that. Yeah. I, I do my videos and they get tagged because I use scenes from movies uh, in the videos that I do for them. <laughs> and I don't get blocked or anything. I, you know, they say this isn't a strike, but you know, uh, and I put the thing on there. It says, you know, this is from this movie. I do use a lot of uh, movie clips uh, with them. You spoke Ed, about 
and Augustine was the lead into this, disintegration and integration. And you also spoke about roles and how the roles have to be anchored in an actual person. And by way of easy and natural transition, Ed, that leads us to the question of faith and politics. Uh, are, are they uh, forever divisible or are they approaching the indivisible or is their relationship every bit as mysterious as that of the Trinity? So, any, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be what I am. I mean, if, if we're fully, if we're integrated, you know, if I'm not separating out my, the different parts and being different things to different, not, not in the sense of Paul, but Paul's all things to all men, but that, that wasn't Paul being a different person. That was everybody could relate to Paul because he was reaching out to everybody and could understand people in a special way. Uh, but with politics, I just, I can't, you know, put aside my faith we're told we're supposed to do this sometimes. I don't put aside my faith for politics. It fully informs it. Um, I, I, I really don't consider myself a reformer because a reformer is a really dangerous job and not one that I'm capable of. Uh, what I can do is do something right uh, and be a kind of uh, yeah, example. Uh, I can kind of do something right and then hope that others decide they would also like that or that the people decide that that's what they want. But really, it's still me. And just because I believe the way that I do doesn't mean that I'm going to put all that into law. You know, there's, I'm not after a theocracy here. I can work fully within the Constitution uh, because my faith governs my life. I mean, that governs even. It's just my life. And in a country like this, you just have everybody contributing what they are. And if we vote people into office that are not integrated, if we vote people into office that are in it for themselves, which is against the faith, um, then <clears throat> that's a problem. Then the, the country is going to reflect that. Uh, you know, it's funny because we've had the conversations uh, in the public domain about, uh, you know, whether the bishop should be giving <coughs> communion to pro-abortion can uh, can candidates or, or politicians. But what's interesting to me is, is that that debate has not really occurred the same way when so many of those Catholic politicians are utterly corrupt. You know, nobody really questions, at least I don't see this as much as I think that we ought to. And I'm not making a position on whether they should be giving communion. I leave that to the bishops. That just doesn't concern me that much. Uh, but we don't seem to be outraged over the corruption as in the same way that we are over life issues. And, and I do understand the value of the human life is beyond all cost. I mean, that's, that's, it is a serious thing. And there's a lot of other issues uh, where they don't follow the teaching of the church. Certainly people... The politicians that have been uh, not respectful toward immigrants, toward the poor, you know, all that. But my point is, is that we've very rarely ever, I, I've never heard anybody really talk about the obligation as a Catholic to be an ethical politician, 
to tell the truth, to not take uh, bribes against the innocent, which is in scripture. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be covered. And I mean, they'll talk about character and whether they're an alcoholic, whether they, you know, take amphetamines or something, you know, uh, their marriage problems and stuff like that, whether they're divorced and remarried. But to me, I mean, if you're going to put people in government, it seems like the part of the faith that's terribly relevant is honesty and ethics and, uh, and, and doing the right thing, not just seeking one's own uh, increase in power and wealth. And I, I don't know sometimes why that's not talked about more. Does that, does that make sense? Well, it, it sure does. But now I want to turn back to the students. Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, would you say they're pre-political? That's probably fair. That's probably fair. Uh, what I think is interesting is we tend, I, I always like to go to root cause. I, I am obsessed with what's the root of this thing. And in talking with them about something, and I don't remember what, but in the course of it, I try to be, I try to, to show them that there is an effort to convince them. You know, there's marketing. Uh, a lot of the lessons, a lot of the things in, in analyzing what happened in World War II, the psychologists like uh, Stanley Milgram, uh, Solomon Ash, you know, the research that they did uh, really was supposed to expose, okay, how did this happen? And then, you know, we know how to avoid it in the future, but instead it became a how-to manual for manipulating the public. So how can we do what happened in Germany better <laughs> and be more effective and not make uh, those mistakes? So anyway, and that's what's in my head. I don't say it in quite those ways. Uh, although I do expose them to the, uh, the Solomon Ash uh, conformity experiment uh, and, and really go into that one in some detail. Uh, okay, so I think I, well, that was one of those cases where I went off too far to one side. Okay, so we now, talk, well, no, it's, it's okay. So what it, what it comes down to is, is that I actually, in the, in the course of talking with them, said, you know, do you ever feel like people are trying to fool you? And the whole class pretty much erupted. And it was a really, really educational moment for me because I never expected that. To me, it was almost an offhand remark. And so we explored that more. And they feel like everybody is lying to them. They feel like the teachers are lying to them. Their parents lie to them. They're not hostile to their parents. This is a very working class, uh, low income uh, parish. And so a lot of them live close to the bone. Uh, so they don't have a lot of hostility to their parents. They actually love their parents. They respect them a lot. And, and it's a little surprising because things that I grew up with, they don't know that at all. They, they have a much better experience than I did. But they do feel like they can't really trust anybody anymore. So that, that was, I don't know what to do with it all the time, but that matters a lot. So they're going into politics looking for someone to trust maybe. And of course, somebody that's skillful at marketing could capture them. You know, that could work. Uh, but this whole business, especially in California here, uh, has been such a mess that it's, it's taken their trust in the system down to a new low, I think. Mario, where should, yeah, Mario, where should we go next? There's so many things here. Yeah, <clears throat> I think there are many things. 
um, perhaps we need to go backwards in order to move forward. You said something that is very interesting to me. You said, well, perhaps when you are giving these classes of confirmation, it's pre-political. I'm not sure that I agree with you. And let me say why. Because when um, you say, or generally that's the case, you are giving these classes within a program. That sounds to me like the betrayal of modernity. Let's put it this way, very Uh clearly. Because I don't think passing on the faith is a program. And I don't think passing an ideal view of politics is a program either. In other words, what you are conveying is a life. There is an encounter. Something moves you, you tell your story, and people see in you what is the secret of your behavior, so to speak. And as uh, George Bernano says, everything is grace. So you begin with grace, and politics begin with grace. I think one of the huge issues that people don't, I think they are missing about the collapse of Christian democracy. It is because they see politics as a rational, ratio effort. And so when the whole community have lost the contact with grace, the whole apparatus fell to the ground and today is nowhere to be found. And so people try to restore that by building another apparatus. It's not gonna <laughs> yes. At least it's not going to work in the sense that a true Christian politic is. And so my question again, or my reflection again, is that I do believe, and I want to, you to react about that, that when you are conveying your life on an encounter, That's a political encounter because politics is about what? The good of the person is the common good. So we are evangelizing and that is the first step of politics. And this is not what I'm saying. This is Pius the Twelfth, which said precisely about politics. So I don't know what do you say about that. I'm sorry I have been very long. No, that was good. No, it was good. And and it's, it's... Fantastic. One of the things that, one of the terms that I use sometimes, I don't always use it with them, is that I tend to be very organic. And and in that, it's that I'm not working, I I really love the thing about it, you know, the program and everything. I have, I have, I'm very less likely to be work teaching in a parish where the program is strong, (laughs) where they have, you know, a system, you will cover this part of the creed on this day. Uh, and don't do these story things, you know, just tell them what's in the book. Because um, anybody can read the book. Uh, but in the process of talking with them, there's lots of little asides that come out. And when my, when who I am comes out, they're seeing the integration. And that's not to say that I'm, you know, perfect or anything. If I were perfect, it'd be so much more powerful, I think. But it is the integration. And, you know, if, if we look at it as, well, it is political because, you know, it's interactions of people and it's, it's the common good and everything. All of that comes out 
naturally, comes out organically uh, as a natural flow uh, in the Holy Spirit, uh, that it just works. And when they say that they like the stories, I know, even though I don't usually say this, and I'm funny even about saying it on here where it's kind of public, but the fact is I know that they trust me because they're reading the fact that I love them and I care about them and I'm here for their good and not because I'm trying to score points with God. Because I can do, and I've told them, I mean, we talk about it. One of the first things I learned to tell them was, by the way, just so you know, I don't get paid for doing this because they always assume I'm getting paid. They always do. That's how bad the lack of trust is now. And that lack of trust is not a criticism of the young people. It's a statement of just fact. It is the way it is that they don't trust as much. Uh, but they have to know that, that this shepherd, if you don't mind, uh, is not doing it for pay. And I'm doing it out of love for them because, and I would rather, I've got a lot of other things I'd probably rather do in a sense. But on the other hand, I really, really want to do this because I love them. I mean, there's no other way. And it's not because it's that particular person. I wish it was. Um, Just in general, I look and there's sheep without a shepherd. There's no one that's seeking their good. They've got lots of people that are seeking to use them. And so I think that because that's what's, because that's the fire that's in me, I believe that because they're young and they're not jaded and cynical, I think they actually see that. I think they're able to feel it and that there's something being communicated at a spiritual level, for lack of a better term. You know, there's all these terms have been abused for so many years. It's hard to say anything anymore without it being taken wrong. Uh, But so there's a lot of things. That it, you know, it's kind of funny is that, oh, if you remember, there was a musical, and this is exactly how I do class, <laughs> but you guys will remember it. There was a musical called My Fair Lady. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a song in there where the guy really, really likes her, not, not the professor, but the young guy really likes her and everything else. And she, and, and the song is, you know, you do this and you tell me about the moon. You tell me all these poetic things that you love me, but show me. <laughs> and that's the refrain to the song. It's worth it to go and look that one up. Show me. And what I'm doing with the young people, not intentionally, just by being myself, is I'm showing them. I'm doing love rather than talking about love. And I think that's what's largely missing for them. It's what's missing in politics. It's funny, I did a, a, a thing for the campaign uh, in 2018 at a mosque where I went. They hosted a, a, a panel where all the candidates could come. Of course, the incumbent didn't bother to show up. But in the, I have never really, I can't remember ever a candidate doing anything like this, but my appeal to them was, you are my neighbors. I'm doing this for you so you have a better choice. That's the reason because you are my people and I love you. And this is what it means. This is what patriotism is, is not love of the physical land, but the love of the people. And if somebody comes up here illegally, enters the United States, and they live next door to me, 
then they are my neighbor and I love them. <laughs> and I don't really care anything except for the fact that they are present living in my community. Therefore, I have an obligation to them, which is a very, for me, a very pleasant obligation to have. Um, so it's, 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 it's living it in their presence, in the presence of the young people, living it and doing it and letting them observe and make of it what they will. That, and that was a long response, Mario. <laughs> Does that kind of fit in with what you were thinking? Yes, yes. And, and, and by the way, what is your political credo then? <laughs> uh, that it's a, <laughs> that, so I'm going to read off of here because I didn't, I didn't want to stumble around on the quote. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, it's easy to think that the state has a lot of different objects, military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists simply to promote and to protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. A husband and wife chatting over a fire, a couple of friends having a game of darts in a pub, a man reading a book in his own room or digging in his own garden. That is what the state is there for. And unless they're helping to increase and prolong such moments, all the laws, parliaments, armies, courts, police, economics, etc., are simply a waste of time. And that's the thing I think that's been forgotten, you know? So that's my political credo is to do the things, to make the things work, to facilitate the lives of the people. And it's not for me to get power or money or to not even for me to promote the faith. It's not my job in politics to encourage people to become Catholic, except in so much as my example in doing that job is a model and they say, wait, I want what he's got. And if they do that, that is not part of the political proper in, in your other, you know, definition. And maybe it is, but um, that's a consequence. That's a naturally following an organic consequence, if you will, of doing what's right. And, and I have absolutely zero guilt, if somebody comes Catholic because of the way that I do my job. <laughs> I'll uh, add, uh, Christopher is constituent conscious. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah. he also knows the limits of politics. And I'll bet he has uh, an insider five here for us. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually a very powerful political operator. He didn't know. That. <laughs> <laughs> He's still with the Taft, the Taft faction. Yeah, the Taft. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I sit on the village, my village council, a village of about 400 people in, in Ohio. Oh, very so, good. And I've been doing it about a year now. So, and it's you talk about doing it for no money. Um, I get paid <laughs> like I think I get paid 525 dollars a year. Oh wow. Yeah, so yeah, two payments. So um, yeah, so I understand it. it, it you, the, the, I mean, the limit. What you're, you're running, you were running for Congress, is that correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. So you you would you would deal with issues that go beyond, say, sewers. For us, it's, it's sewer is a big right. issue. Moving water from one place to another, making sure water doesn't run in the wrong places. That is like the 
essence of, of village government. That's government. real. That's real government. That's yeah. the real thing. Right. And we have to, we have to, we're considering lots. There's questions of the, the town, the village is sort of depressed um, as a lot of Ohio villages are. Mm-hmm. Ohio, Ohio towns. We have a um, threat of 2,600 acres being given over to solar panels. So, and the, all the problems that's going to bring. So, you know, we have the, 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 there are those issues that come up. But um, so you would, you, you talk about your political credo. Um, how do you, what would be your platform if you were running? What, what sorts of things might be, what kind of planks might be on your platform? So actually, uh, I'm redoing the website right now because it got hacked. But uh, I pretty much just go over all the major functions of government. Uh, you know, I have to deal with defense. I have to deal with uh, immigration and, uh, you know, just our and, and foreign policy. Uh, obviously, the matters of life in the broader sense. So, I mean, I'm, I'm thoroughly against the death penalty in the United States in a developed country. I, there are some fine points of that that we won't go into right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, just basically, you know, health, the health of the people, uh, education, all those things. I deal with each one. Uh, I don't have an ideology and had discussions on this. You might disagree. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, everybody has an ideology. No, I'm not sure. Cause an ideology uh, Thomas Merton said an ideology is a rule made automatic. Maybe he got that from somebody else. I don't know, but I, I like that definition. If it becomes automatic, then you're not questioning it anymore. And if you're not questioning it, how are you going to adapt it to changes in the environment? You know, things change outside you, your, your views are going to have to adapt. It doesn't mean you change your mind for everything, but we have to change our response. We have to change the actions that we take. Uh, so anyway, I deal with each of those things. Uh, once I get the site back up, you can take a look at it. You probably like it all. Uh, and you'll probably have some differences, you know, but they're going to be minor because I've found that these are all more common sense, practical. If there's nothing else, I'm practical. I've done an awful lot of technical work for 40 years. And if there's one thing that's probably made me more successful than anything else, I don't mean monetarily, but in the sense of getting the job done, because I'm really good at getting things done. Uh, it's because I'm always practical. And if I look at it and I say, okay, what are you going to do with immigration? Well, with immigration in the first place, you're going to have to accept there's people here that didn't come through a system, you know, that they just got here. I mean, and, and I know a good number of them. This district, the demographics of, uh, demographics of this district are such, we have a very large number of people here that are here, not through the system. They are not documented. Uh, we also have... Uh, the last time I looked, because I pulled the data from the uh, registrar, uh, there were a hundred different languages being spoken because they have some language. Uh, if the number of countries people are from here is huge uh, and it tends to be low income. Uh, you know, if you have a lot of immigrants coming in, they will generally be making less uh, than the people that have been established longer. Even people from the same country, the next generation is going to do better, we hope. And, and often that's the case. Uh, so, uh, let's see. So anyway, like on the issue of immigration, you have to start from here is what it is, not what do I want it to be? You know, what's my attitude? I don't care. The point is they're here. And now what claim does that make on us as human beings? 
And what do you have to do to do the right thing? And then when somebody, the, the Republican that ran against me in 2018 was for deporting everybody here illegally, period. And I'm not going to shy from the word illegal and do the whole undocumented thing because the people that do that very often really don't care. They're just using them as political weapons. They don't really care about the people. So were they, did they do this? Uh, did they violate a law of the United States? Yes. Are they documented? No. You know, okay. Well, that's just the way it is. It doesn't say anything about the person. I'm just saying what the situation is. Uh, but anyway, um, so he was saying just deport them all. He got 30% of the vote. Is that a practical solution? I mean, put even put morality aside, is that really ever going to happen? No, that, that's not even something. The effort to do that would put us in the position of being like the, you know, people from World War II that their their title gets overused. Uh, you know, it, it would be a horrible thing. It would be a, it would be a, what did I put on my site someplace was that it would be a human catastrophe of epic proportions mm-hmm. to do something like that. So I guess in my, in my talking in Congress or something, it would be, I, I feel like I want to slap you for even thinking of it. Why would you even bring this to the table when it is so impractical? So putting morality aside, you're never going to be able to do it. Why are you bringing me solutions that are not even, even the slightest bit practical? Well, it's marketing, right? It's marketing. Yes, it it's positioning. It's it's posturing. It's oh my goodness, I hate it. I mean, one of my pet peeves right now is that, and 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 I'm not picking on him because he's a Democrat, but that the current president, when he was campaigning, said, "We're going to cure cancer. Put me in office, we will cure cancer." They've been going after cancer for a long time. And I'm sorry, but that was that should have been a tell to people that you're promising something you cannot possibly do and you can't possibly know you could do it. That that was such an outrageous promise that it was just simply a lie. And for somebody like this candidate that said, I'm going to have you put me in there, I'm going to get everybody deported that's not here, uh, that's not a citizen you know, we're going through the proper process that should have clued people in. They should have said, this guy's a lunatic. This, this is an idiot. (laughs) And, and, but they don't And 30% voted for the guy. And by the way, he was a GOP candidate who was pro-abortion and he got 30% of the vote here, which was pretty much every Republican. And I talked to people afterward that said they voted for him that they were in the, they were in the local pro-life community. <laughs> yeah. I said, why'd you do it? They go, he's a Republican. <laughs> you know, you didn't have a chance. So I said, don't you believe in voting on principle at all? <laughs> well, one could argue in California, no Republican has a chance, right? <laughs> well, I think that's reasonable. I mean, we obviously do have some that are in Congress that are Republicans, but, you know, it's, it's going to be a 70-30 split pretty much uh, most of the time. And so whenever a Republican tells me, you know, a vote for you is a wasted vote because you're an independent, it's like, well, no Republican has won in this district in more than 20 years. So a vote for the Republican is a wasted vote. If you're going to waste your vote and you have your choice between somebody that has practical, solid values that fit yours, mostly, uh, or somebody that's a lunatic, 
if, if, if neither one can win, shouldn't you at least make a statement? <laughs> right. So have you, have you thought of running for local offices? I, I think one of the problems in American politics is that people are not, pay, they pay no attention. I know this, they pay no attention to local government and local government's extremely important. If you thought of a city council position, or I don't know if you live in a city or a county commissioner or something like that. Yeah, uh, they have a few things here like that. The problem is, is that my, this is just me, my natural tendency is to deal with things that are large. Um, my, I have a stronger uh, desire to deal with things like foreign policy to deal with the, the, some of the larger issues like immigration, things that don't get dealt with at a local level. Uh, it's not because I don't think they're important and I don't know how well I would do, but uh, it looked to me that given our district, uh, I could do something with this particular campaign because of the unique demographics of the district mixed with the weakness in the Republican Party. Uh, I'm trying to, in a sense, get a wedge in. And I think that the key to real change, as much as it's true from the bottom up, we have to face the fact that there are two very, very large political parties that right now have a stranglehold on the country. And, and in a situation like that, if, I can, if there was any way that we could get just one independent or one non-Republican, non uh, Democrat into Congress in some fashion and the Senate it's impossible. I mean, I, sorry, I shouldn't say impossible, but the Senate works in a totally different way. And I just, I don't see any way of that happening. And anybody that thinks Bernie Sanders is an independent, I, you know, they need to look again. He's in the democratic caucus. He's not an independent folks. <laughs> uh, it's just a thing that he does, I think, to make himself feel better for being the horrible person he is. Sorry. I have absolutely no respect for Bernie Sanders at all. He's just, yeah, don't even start me. And I'm so sorry if I've offended anybody. Uh, but getting a real independent into uh, Congress, into the House of Representatives, hasn't happened in the sense of voting somebody in uh, in more than 100 years. I think it would, I think it would attract media. And, and as it said, I, liked, I do like the quote movies. Uh, what was it? Sunset Boulevard. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Uh, you know, it's... It, I think it could do something symbolic that could light the country on fire. And at a local level, you can do a lot of things there, but that's a long game. If you're going to start locally in change in the first place, uh, it would take a long time to work that up. And that's not saying not to do it. It's, I absolutely think that's the right thing to do. I think that I have, I, I perceive this to be a situation that given who I am, and given the particulars of this district, this made sense to me. But I certainly did consider it. Uh, I'm, I don't always do well in certain things. And the, the local politics here, you're dealing with stuff. I did a little bit for a while uh, with, we have, our, our city is divided up into administrative districts. And uh, the one that I was in, I worked with somebody that had been working with the city council and everything. And, I got a bad enough taste from that one. And honestly, I felt like they were lunatics too. So, <laughs> yeah, so and you probably, you know, in, in, in yours, it's Christopher, it's smaller. So I kind of suspect that it's a little more positive in some ways. And, and maybe you're able to 
swing it more positive. But here, it's it looks pretty ugly. Mm-hmm. And and we have a lot of there's there's corruption here too. I I have personal experience, I should say professional experience with some of the corruption, uh, where mm-hmm. we had a former mayor that was getting money that he shouldn't have been getting uh, from a company that I work for. So it was a very bad situation. <laughs> I don't know my situation. It's I just want to say this is a one off. I I see my situation as being a one off. Not saying it's a pattern for anybody else. Well, it's certainly the case that Orange County, Cal- County, California is much different from Licking County, Ohio. <laughs> what, what do you What do you make about the American Solidarity Party? I think it's wonderful. I think you know it's it's not Democrat and it's not Republican, so that's a point for it right there. Uh, the people are the best thing in the American Solidarity Party. The leadership, uh, as it stands right now, especially. Uh, my goodness, the quality of the people. I, I, it's, it's almost like I was saying, you know, when I went to that retreat group, uh, it, it's been a real shock for me to find people that actually really care for the right reasons. They're not after power and, and money and everything else. That doesn't mean you won't get people in there that try. <laughs> you know, hopefully the party can expel the, <laughs> the ones that try to come in and invade and conquer. Uh, you've had some success. Uh, but mostly it's just that the, the people, the leadership made such, such an impression uh, that I, I just, I just think it's lovely. And I wish that, I wish it could grow. I think there's some very disaffected groups in the United States that could, uh, uh, that could do a mass exodus from their party and join the American Solidarity Party. And it would be really, really a good idea Uh, I remember a letter, an open letter to Hillary Clinton from the Seymour Institute in the campaign, early, earlier, I think, in the campaign in 2020. I'm sorry, in, 20, in, in 2016. 2016. Uh, fantastic open letter to her, uh, utterly ignored. Uh, that group uh, would could very much... Uh, just mass exodus into the American Solidarity Party, and they would find that it was their party, and and it would work very well. There's a lot of groups right now that are not well represented. They're used, but not well represented. And in the Solidarity Party, they would be the party. It'd be wonderful. Ed, you began with a, a focus on context and trust. And you've also asked us to reflect on the last stanza of Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach. Uh, Should I read that stanza? Sure. Ah, love, let us be true, true to one another. For the world, which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms, of struggle and flight where ignorant armies clash by night. 
That's melancholy. That's melancholy. You know, this is about trust and the almost complete absence thereof. And it talks about uh, ignorant armies struggling by night. What else should we think about that that you asked us to reflect on? <laughs> well, this is the poem, as I understand it, was Matthew Arnold on his uh, honeymoon was looking out at, at Dover and watching the ocean and thinking that it represented the retreat of the ocean as the tide went out was like the faith leaving Europe. And of course, whenever something powerful leaves, it creates a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. And the things that rush in to fill that vacuum are not usually positive. And in our time, you know, we've got the ignorant armies clash by night. I mean, it's the left and the right, the Republicans and Democrats, the progressives and conservatives. I don't know. But, you know, they're all out there just fighting and we're stuck in no man's land. Uh, and that's where our young people are. And I read this to the young people and focus on that last stanza because this is where they, this is what they feel. And this gives words to it. Uh, and you have to start with where you are. So this is, this is it. But the answer is love. And if we're true to one another uh, and care for one another, that's how we get through this is by loving one another. So now, in our discussions over the years now, we've worked on the interplay of orthodoxy and orthopraxis. <laughs> and because of that, we're always open to a said contra. You have a position and then the said contra is, yeah, but what about mm -hmm. And we spoke about how you teach and stories and, and getting the right meaning from the stories. Uh, just a note about Matthew Arnold. Uh, Matthew Arnold enormously admired uh, John Henry Newman. Enormously. Oh, yeah. And heard him teach and heard him preach and uh, Arnold said nonetheless becoming a Catholic is today an utter impossibility and this was way back when and in time because Matthew Arnold wanted to unite people he pretty much dispensed with everything that could be called doctrine and he came to define religion in a very pithy way. Religion, he said, is morality touched by emotion. Mm. Morality touched by emotion. And as I say that, I think, well, Oprah Winfrey would agree with that. Yes, yes, yes. And... Uh, so Mario likes to talk about personal encounter. And I have a student, former student, I'm not making this up, who recently sent me a publication of his with the title Church as Syllogism. <laughs> oh, so uh, uh, I think we're probably coming to the end of the hour. And yeah. uh, so... <laughs> Is need another out. 
We need another hour. hour for this. I yes. <laughs> Emerge from the shadows. Uh, uh, all right, uh, we have a body, we have flesh, and the flesh ha- hangs together with uh, uh, a spine. And uh, could you say a bit about this coming together or not coming together? Uh, in, in what sense? You mean... What? All right, uh, I've heard many a sermon after which I say to my wife, Dogma free. Oh, oh, yes, 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 yes. And we have Matthew Arnold is, is offering a hope to people who are bereft yeah. of trust. But it turns out at the end of his struggle, he says, ah, yes, religion. Yeah. Morality with emotion. Yeah, it's it's probably a shortcoming of his. Uh, you know, sometimes whatever we enjoy, we end up. Uh, embracing it to the exclusion of all else. And it's very easy to enjoy the, there are feelings, oh my goodness, there are feelings that are indescribable that come from prayer and from the relationship with God. And, and when I say relationship from God, I want to gag kind of because it's taking something that is beyond description and putting it into very, very poor words, because ultimately it is, it's a relationship that, it's it's indescribable and then I, I won't even be able to talk. Um, but the problem is, is you can take that feeling and center on the feeling and then forget it's what is it? It's they say it's 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 focusing on the gift and not the giver. And Matthew Arnold, I think in some ways, focused on the feelings, and and really I think he gave up too easily. I think he said, oh, yeah, the faith is retreating. Okay, I can't do anything about that. But now we're going to try and find some substitute that makes us feel good uh, because we can't really win this battle. And I'm not ready to give up. Uh, but there's, there is that thing where you just do that. And what happens is that as soon as you're no longer drawing water from that living water, that flowing water that's underneath, and say, okay, now I've scooped up a little bit of that water, it's tasty, and I'm going to put it in my little bucket, and I'm going to go carry it around, pretty soon that water evaporates. And maybe it evaporates in a later generation. Uh, But as soon as you cut yourself off from the living water, as soon as you cut yourself off from the supply that made all of that beauty and all of that power and all of that love possible, it just degrades. It just falls apart to me. And, 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 you know, we're a little limited on time here, but, but I think that's really my answer to it is, is that, yeah, it's easy to do that. It's easy to take the good feelings and then want the good feelings only. And the only other thing I'll add on that is that to me, and I hadn't thought about this before this moment as much. That is the, the beauty of the dry periods in the spiritual life. Because there are times where we pray and it doesn't feel like anyone's listening and we get no response and there's just nothing, but we keep doing it. I mean, if you do it right, you keep doing it. And, and if I have to, I will live on an intellectual faith where I say, I feel nothing right now, but I look back to the past, to what I know is there, to who I know is there. Uh, and that will sustain me as best as I can. And I will struggle knowing intellectually 
that God is listening and that God is love and he's there, even if I don't feel it. What is it? I believe in the sun, even if I don't see it shining, you know, or puddle glum in the, uh, the silver chair in the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, that when he's underground, he says, I, you know, and, and the witch says, you know, oh, this sun you speak of, you know, and all that, you know, oh, what an interesting thing. It's on fire. Oh, wow. And he says, you know what? I've been there. But even if what you say is true, I like what I believe better than what you're offering. <laughs> so we, we, we work with what we've got. Sometimes feeling is enough to get me through. Sometimes intellect has to get me through. And in the most blessed times of all, everything is firing all together. And it's the most awesome thing that could ever be. And Christmas is coming. Mario, should we close as we always do? Or is there time for... Yes. Uh, yes. All right. It's more we than always one hour. Close, yeah. <laughs> we always close with the gospel for the day. And this is from Luke. At that time... John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? When the men came to the Lord, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? At that time, Jesus cured many of their diseases, sufferings, and evil spirits. He also granted sight to many who were blind. And Jesus said to them in reply, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you so very much. Thank Ed. you. Oh, thank you. This is a just a joy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. All thank right. You. We'll be back in touch once the race gets going. <laughs> okay. And the thank gerrymandering you. has come to a conclusion. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. I mean, uh-huh. what, how it looks in the data. <laughs> Godspeed. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.